What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Computer, this is Data. I'm an android. I'm a... basketball? I was processing all of the information. Processing. It's one of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers pick basketball? Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. I, today, am your host, Cranjus McBasketball. You can call me Tim. Tom and I had a scheduling conflict, so he won't be joining us today, but we'll have him back soon. Today, we are talking Western Conference Finals, post-game three, you know, a little bit of recap, a little bit of looking ahead to game four. This was a tough loss for the Lakers. We're down a lot of the game, lost most of the quarters. We saw Furious come back at the end. It just wasn't enough, but did see a bit of fight from the guys. There were a lot of interesting adjustments that were made by both teams, so we're going to break that down. If we talk just about takeaways, I'd say that it's easy to characterize what we aren't really able to break down or maybe understand, especially in the moment. Um, You can say, oh, you know, LA wasn't focused, or they played lazily, or they weren't trying hard enough more energy, more hustle, yada, yada. Those, the coach speak stuff. One thing you need to know is when they send us to those, you know, inside the huddles, they'll show that portion of it. They're not going to show the public the portion of those huddles where they say, okay, the reason we're not getting to the rim is because they're doing X, Y, and Z. Here's how we're going to adjust to that. Because those tangible things are what ends up impacting a lot of this. Those characterizations can be true. You may see guys be lazy or, or not be focused, but we can see specific ways in which that plays out. For focus, it might be blown coverages or miscommunications on defense, which we did see a little bit of in Game 3. Having two guys rotate to one offensive player might be an example. But there are also those tangible changes that impacted why players turn the ball over more or why they shot poorly or why they didn't rebound well or whatever it is. We're going to focus on those more tangible moves that the teams made. Let's talk a little bit about how they reacted to them and then what we might see for Game 4. Vogel talked pregame about how game threes are decisive from an adjustment standpoint, and I think we saw that. Denver just happened to be the team that brought those better adjustments. And if you remember from last pod, uh, I mentioned that about, you know, halfway into the first quarter, we'd probably know if LA came with the right adjustments or not, because there were things that Denver showed them last game that didn't really change this game. There weren't that many adjustments from Denver. And the Lakers just didn't have answers to those questions that that Denver had asked them in the second half of, of game two. Early in the game, we saw that LA didn't make those adjustments and I was tweeting about it, not feeling good. I, I think LA was up like 16, 14. And I was sitting there on my couch uh, telling my girlfriend, we're going to lose. And, and she looked at me like I was crazy. Um, I didn't quite tweet that out. I just said, it's going to be a battle where we might be in trouble. But some of those things, if the team doesn't come to the arena with those adjustments already figured out, 
there's a good chance they're not going to figure them out in the game. Um, just because if you're going to look at the film and analyze what happened and figure out the best path forward, usually that'll come when you can do all, all those things and you have that off day and you can implement new stuff. And a lot of the new stuff we talked about wasn't new. It wasn't crazy. It wasn't, okay, you're the Lakers. Go play like the Warriors tomorrow or go play like the Denver Nuggets. It was little, they were little adjustments that let the Lakers play within themselves, continue doing what they like to do and find ways to adjust tactically to what Denver was showing them. I think the defense in particular made some adjustments that almost took a step backwards, which we'll talk about, but the offense not solving that packed paint puzzle for the third round in a row was really frustrating to me. We did see that furious comeback fueled by that 3-2 zone, which was the one good adjustment we saw late in the game, seemingly out of desperation more than anything. And I mean, despite all that, KCP and LeBron each had three-point shots to potentially tie the game. They didn't go in, but LA was able to show the firepower they have. We just need to figure out our half-court offense because when we're not turning the other team over and able to run a bunch, uh, this the scoring just isn't there for the Lakers with what Denver's doing. Another thing that I've learned more and more as the playoffs have gone by is that even though there might be an answer to the question that, that is being posed and, and we might be able to see it, that doesn't mean that we should assume the coaches are going to see it and be able to game plan and, and have the team ready to execute against that, especially around changing defenses. And on both sides, we saw Denver have some defensive tweaks in the second half of last game. LA had a whole off day to adjust to, and they still made LA's life hell offensively this game. On the other side, the Lakers used that 3-2 zone that suddenly pretty much shut down Denver almost completely on offense. They had some excellent plays, some great shot making by Jamal Murray towards the end of that game, but we saw tons of turnovers that really fueled that Laker comeback. I don't, I don't think you can look at that sequence, that quarter, and say, you know what, Denver did fine against the zone. Um, because it wasn't just that they were inefficient, they were inefficient and also giving the Lakers runouts. A couple other notes, we saw Plumlee and Dozier basically cut from the rotation, which was interesting, especially with Dozier having played pretty well last game. And in this game, instead of sending Morris, Monte Morris and Gary Harris into the same sorts of situations that they struggled with, that Dozier was able to take over for, we saw different kinds of offense from Denver. So they were able to work around that lack of playmaking. And there was, I guess, less need for Dozier. With Plumlee, he played, I think, four minutes at the beginning of the second quarter, and that was it for him. One, I think, sequence that really stood out to me was the minutes that we had no AD and no JaVale or Dwight just kill LA. They were minus 13 to start the second quarter. LA, in that time, was just going too small, and they were waiting for Jokic to come back in to bring in Dwight, and, and that really hurt them. What I would say is, so this was the lineup that had it was, I think, Caruso, Rondo. Actually, let me pull it up. So we had Morris at the five. We had LeBron and Kuzma. And then we had Rondo and Caruso. And that group met, went minus 13. And the reason there is we're crazy small. We were not making the right offensive adjustments. We weren't utilizing that group the best we could. And then just defensively, you're going to get killed on the boards. You're going to get killed with with Denver going inside, even without Jokic, just by being able to drive and attack. And they had Plumlee out there, and and they were able to score pretty well. He had a couple rebounds, an offensive rebound, an assist. So that group, and I think some of the redundant playmaking that you have by having LeBron plus Rondo doesn't make as much sense for me. What I would want to do is bring JaVale in for those minutes. He sat for the second half of the first quarter. He can come in for another four or five minutes, play him, 
plus keep Kuzma out there, and you can keep Morris out there. And then for the other two spots, I would say either play LeBron and Caruso, because Alex Caruso, we don't want him being our lead guard. He is someone we want alongside a guy like LeBron or, or a guy like Rondo, but when you have the two of them together, LA's pretty small on, on defense. And unless you're playing that 3-2 zone, I don't really know if I like that look. So LeBron and Caruso or go Rondo and KCP. Rondo, LeBron, and Caruso all together doesn't jive as well for me. Um, and, and so if you're bringing in JaVale to play with that group, I would j- drop one of those players between Caruso, Rondo, and LeBron to make sure you just have the right mix in there. Obviously, you want LeBron playing the most he can, but if he's not going to play, I would rather see Rondo KCP than Rondo Caruso for that group. So I think that's something to keep an eye out for. We saw Dwight Howard finish the game with four fouls, which to me means he didn't play enough because he didn't foul out. His minutes, and, and we talked about this last last pod, looking just at the net ratings for groups or the offensive ratings or defensive ratings, those are the results. That, that tells you what happened, but how we got to that and what can be done to improve what happened to improve those results is is really what I want to pay attention to. We're not going to, as a podcast, just look at something and say, hey, you know what? This didn't perform well. Let's never use it again. In some cases, there are inherent disadvantages that are hard to recover from based on a lineup you're putting out there that make it more difficult. But just looking at the results by themselves, not really having a process behind it and assuming it's either working or not working, I don't think is the way to go. So we'll keep that in mind. We'll talk about that a little bit later as we go along. So let's talk about the Denver offense. One move that we had some dialogue around last podcast was how the Lakers were switching in those pick and roll situations and and in some of the handoffs. And it wasn't an automatic switch. We weren't seeing the two players immediately switch. What we saw was the Lakers use a catch hedge where, where the big man would come to the level of the ball and he would try to stick on Murray until Murray's man recovered to Murray. And then that big would try to run back to the big. But last game, what Jamal Murray did that was really smart and, and something that I, I know a lot of other guards can look to do. I think this would be a little tiny thing that would make Dame Lillard's game even, even more hard to stop is string that out a little bit. Move laterally, move to the side because what you do there, if you're able to take, I don't know who it is, uh, Markeith Morris, and you're able to move him an additional 10 or 15 feet to the left, and then he needs to go sprint all the way back and recover to somebody who's picking and popping or picking and rolling, that is just so much more space to attack. And because of that, the Lakers last game were just switching. They would try to recover. They would try to have, we'll say, KCP. He would take a couple steps back towards Murray and then realize, okay, he's he's strung this out. I'm going to stick with that big man. We're going to switch. If Murray didn't string it out, the Lakers were able to hedge and recover. But in this game what we saw the Lakers do was instead of doing that catch hedge and then switching, they did that catch hedge. And even with Murray continuing to string those out and creating that extra space, they were very stubborn. LA was very stubborn and they still tried to recover. We saw that 10 times and Denver ended up scoring 15 points on eight possession, eight chances. And then an additional two times where the LA was able to recover and then there was no advantage and, and the possession played on. Um, that doesn't mean they did or didn't score in that possession, but the action by itself, based on them being able to reset, didn't really accomplish anything. It, it, we didn't quite shut them out, but we shortened the shot clock. It was a less efficient possession. Those are wins for us. But 
15 points if you say 10 possessions, which is a little generous, but still 15 points on 10 possessions is not very good. And it's not just a result thing here. If we looked at what Denver did when they saw the Lakers were doing this was they attacked it. They went right at it. If they know and and Murray kept stringing it out, they have that pick and pop wide open. Or if we sent that guy from the weak side to go take uh, Jokic, the man who was then being left open was open for a three or would cut to the rim. So we, in that sense, were able to get other players, or Denver was able to get other players involved. We also saw Jokic roll and be open, and then suddenly our big man needs to step up, and then there's a dump-off available, or Jokic has some of those mid-range shots. So, so that was something that we saw from this. Compare that to when we switched, which actually, by the end of the game, it ended up being a little bit more often, and some of that had to do when we, when we played zone. It, it increased the number of switches. But when we look at those catch hedges that turned into switches, which is what we did last game, we forced four turnovers. We forced zero turnovers with the catch and recover. And overall, Denver scored 15 points on 14 possessions plus two negated ones. So the same amount of points both times, but there were an additional seven times that Denver faced those switches and and essentially got zero extra points off of. So we were much more efficient. The efficiency for for those situations was about what it was for game one and two, which is fine. And LA can beat you if that's how efficient you're scoring and you're not getting other players involved. But when we do that catch and recover, or even when we try drop coverage, which Denver shot three for three against and hit seven points in three possessions, it's it's no coincidence to me that when we stopped switching those actions and needed to get that help defense involved instead of keeping it a two-on-two action, suddenly those other Denver players started getting easier shots and putting up points. And all of a sudden, Jeremy Grant's a thing. And Gary Harris can hit shots. And, and so that, along with LA seeing four quarters this game of those defensive adjustments from Denver packing the paint instead of two, like we saw in game two, that full game instead of half a game meant that the Lakers were turning the ball over more. It gave Denver more runouts. They had, in their own right, I think they had... 22 points in 18 possessions in transition. So an extra 20 points we we gifted them by turning the ball over and, and giving up some of those runouts. So in this game, in the previous games, the switching has worked. It's not always the most comfortable. I think it's important not to watch if if LA switches 20 times and two of those time two of those times we end up with Rondo on Nikola Jokic and he bullies him and he scores. You might say, we can't do that. We can't give that up. But you have to look at it within the full context. Look at the numbers. Realize that that's not actually happening that frequently. And even when Jokic has been facing those smaller guys, he hasn't been all that efficient because they've been really good at forcing turnovers against him. So looking at the bigger picture instead of looking almost at the highlights of what happened and letting some salience, uh, saliency bias uh, kind of seep in and, and, you know, you can't just look at those highlights or those lowlights and say, you know what, this is working or this isn't working. Because as a whole, by switching, we were forcing more turnovers. We made it a two-man offense for Denver instead of a five-man offense. We weren't getting, we weren't fouling as much. And Jokic wasn't scoring efficiently in the post as he hadn't for the previous couple games. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about Jokic post-ups because we saw, I believe it was 23 or 24 last game. We only saw 12 Jokic post-ups this game where he actually posted somebody up and got the ball. And this is low post. This is high post. If he was like at the three-point line, I didn't 
really like count something something like that. That's more isolation perimeter offense. But when Jokic was posting up, whether low, medium, or high post, he only actually got six for the entire game from quarters one through three until the Lakers went to his zone. And then in the fourth quarter, once LA went to his zone, he had another six because that was really how Denver tried to attack that three-two zone defense. What they did was put him in the middle, got him the ball. He would post up Rajon Rondo frequently or KCP or Alex Caruso, survey the floor, try to keep that ball away from that guard, and then try to make passes. They ran some cuts. They tried to do a little bit of screen action, screening action. None of it really worked. And despite all of that, uh, the longer he's holding onto the ball against those guys trying to steal it, the more steals we ended up getting. Overall, including those six post-ups, most of which, which were against mismatches half of his mismatches I'm sorry half of his post-ups for the game were against mismatches when he posted up against our bigs he only scored a single point from a a free throw on a shooting foul he had two turnovers he had one time where he got the ball we shot him down he had to kick it out and and like for no advantage and then there was one time where he kicked the ball out again not really to an advantage and Denver missed a contested three-pointer so versus our bigs Jokic did nothing this game against our mismatches he also didn't score a single point. He had four times where he passed out to no advantage. He had a turnover. Overall, he had one point on 12 post-ups, which is excellent for the Lakers. So we really shut that down. And if we had been a little bit smarter about how we approached the pick and roll game, and we weren't turning the ball over as much on offense, this doesn't get to a 20-point deficit. Another thing uh, that we saw when Denver was trying to attack those uh, catch hedges and not switching where they would send slips to the rim. We talked about the pick and pops for threes. Denver ran a number of empty side dribble handoffs, meaning that when Jokic would roll on that side of the court, there was no offensive player and thus no defensive player in the corner. So there was no uh, defender to what we would call tag Jokic in the roll and kind of slow him down until the his man can recover and then go recover to your own, your own guy. Because that wasn't there, those empty side dribble handoffs and, and ball screens were getting wide open rolls. Just the fact that Murray was attacking us laterally and then finding those uh, open shots for his teammates, just that, that left me with, with a poor taste in my mouth. So those were some of the big things from Denver. I, I don't want to dig too much more into their offense because a lot of what we saw were role players being able to be role players and finish possessions. When they had to create their own offense, it wasn't working. And for the, mo- for the most part, it wasn't working. And they were turning it over quite often, missing shots. So not a whole lot surprising. But we can improve our defense with some of those tweaks, getting back to that switching, using some of those tactics that we talked about in terms of getting Jokic to attack fewer post-mismatches and uh, set ourselves up for success there. Because, again, today he had 50% of his post-ups against mismatches. A lot of them were against that zone, so I'm not sure if we want to count that, but that's what it looked like on defense. On offense, we saw a continuance of L.A. struggling to attack and score in the paint. Uh, we got to the rim actually better than we did in the second half of last game, which was encouraging, but I think we can do even better especially with Plumlee really being out of the rotation other than those, I think, four or five minutes he played. There are four things that Denver is doing to pack the paint against us. And we're going to look at each of those four things, what it takes away, and then what it gives up. Uh, Because just like in in the last podcast, we talked about, hey, if if you go up to that uh, Wendy's drive-thru, don't ask for the Whopper because it's not there and it's not going to be working. Take what they're giving you and, and be happy with it. The first thing that Denver was doing is pre-rotating 
on drives, which means, and we, we mentioned this last pod, if you're driving from the right wing, let's say LeBron's driving from the right wing or he comes off a ball screen and he's driving and there's a pick and pop. And we have, who would it be? I don't know. We'll say there's KCP on the, the weak side in the corner. KCP's man is going to already be pretty sagged off of him, regardless of who it is. They'll be around at the lane line. The second they see LeBron try to drive, before he even gets really close to the basket, that player is rotating earlier than they normally would uh, to get outside the charge circle and be in a position to take a charge. We know Denver doesn't have rim protection. They know they don't have rim protection. So what they've done instead is send those pre-rotations to create a wall in front of the rim and make it more difficult for the Lakers. And they're guys who aren't really going to Euro step around that guy nearly as frequently as somebody like a James Harden or a Kyrie Irving. Our guys have been running right through them and committing charges. So they're sending that pre-rotation. It takes away that deep drive. And we saw an issue this game. We saw an issue last game with the Lakers over-penetrating and trying to pass out of this too late. Even though that guy is being left open, if, if you wait until you're you know, half a step in front of the guy trying to take a charge to pass out, you're going to commit more charges than if you know that player's already rotating over and you you kick it out to his guy who is open before you even need to penetrate to the rim. This Sometimes on defense, you do things that counter what the Laker or what the offensive player's habits or instincts would tell them. This is a situation where normally you need to get to the rim to collapse the defense to kick it out. If you're running pick and rolls and you're just passing out before you do anything, that's usually not good. But in this situation, because of that pre-rotation, those early pick and roll pass outs and the early pass outs from drives are really the right move because then you're not committing a charge. You're not going to get yourself into trouble where your last second decision making under pressure while you're trying not to commit a charge results in turnovers, which we've seen a lot of. It, it, and it's just taking what the defense is giving you. What this also does is the Lakers can be smart about how they approach this. The lowest man for the defense on the weak side is going to be the person going into pre-rotate. So if it is Danny Green's guy or Markeith Morris's guy and they're standing in the corner, that will be the player who, who may be open or you pass to him and he makes the one more pass. If it's Dwight Howard or JaVale McGee's guy, and they're standing in the dunker spot, those are lob threats that you can use. And these lob threats are very open because it's not just a matter of the defensive player, let's say Nikola Jokic, moving side to side because he is outside the charge circle. He'll charge circle. He is a couple feet forward. So he needs to jump, move backwards, and kind of move to the side to be able to contest those lobs. And that is something that he, in, in his physical state, with how he's a very skilled player, an excellent player, but this is a weakness of his game. It's something that Millsap isn't going to be able to do either. So whether it is Anthony Davis or JaVale McGee or Dwight Howard in that lob dunker spot, the Lakers can use that. And, and I watched six plays in a row from the second quarter where Dwight Howard was in the game and he was open for a lob every single possession at least one time. So if we run a quick pick and roll, and actually I'd be picking and popping, and then have LeBron literally take like two steps and then just throw that lob right away because it's there. Be ready for it, game plan that, go right after that. That should be a point of emphasis. And if you do three or four or five of these in a row, all of a sudden Denver's not going to be pre-rotating anymore. But until the Lakers use that, 
they're not going to be able to force Denver to stop pre-rotating because that's what it's giving up. Uh, even when the Lakers have kicked out to the weak side, unless they're setting screens for those players, you're not getting, the Lakers haven't been able to get a clean shot off. So I would much rather use that lob threat than allow just a scramble drill for Denver against guys who have been hesitant to take threes. Some of them, we really honestly don't really want taking semi-contested threes. Some of them aren't taking them themselves. Uh, and they're not guys who really attack and penetrate and go after closeouts and get to the rim. So instead of kicking it out to Danny Green, who then tries to dribble past this guy and finish at the rim, which isn't something we want, instead of, of having him in that position, just throw one of our three lob threats there. We've seen like Alex Caruso in that dunker spot, which isn't going to really do a whole lot. Uh, we saw him try, he got the ball in that situation and then try to shoot that like horse shot from behind the backboard in, which he did not make. So that's not the kind of guy you want there. You want one of those lob threats that's going to be available and the Lakers need to go use it. And if you don't want to use it, what you can do and what we saw Dwight do about half a dozen times, and, and actually one or two times when he did it, it resulted in an easy buck for the Lakers, was if that big man is getting to the top of that charge circle, instead of if the lob's not there, you don't get it, go stand behind him, seal him off. So when... LeBron or AD or whoever it is does drive, or Rondo actually did this one time when he does drive, Jokic can't move backwards. He can't turn back to contest you at the rim. So you can shoot layups with confidence right off the backboard because you know that Dwight or JaVale or AD is sealing that man off. It's it's something that has been there. We saw it a couple times. I think Rajan Rondo is somebody who he'll throw the lob. He took advantage of when Dwight sealed uh, Jokic off. And he'll also send, uh, he'll do little ball fakes to the lobs that on one possession got Jokic to not even contest him at the rim, even though he at one point was in position. So if the Lakers can say, hey, why the heck is Rajon Rondo getting to the rim so well and finishing well and figure out, you know, why that's happening and how they can implement that with other players, these are things that are available for LeBron James in particular. So that's the pre-rotating. That's just one of the four things. The second is on drives, players are stunting hard. And what this means is if your defender is at kind of like high up on the, the wing, maybe if, if you take the free throw line that goes kind of laterally and you just extend it, if your player is there or maybe a little bit higher along the three-point line and a drive is going past you, instead of watching it or just kind of half-heartedly sticking a hand in the way, you actually take a couple steps over and, and really try to hit at that ball and bother LeBron or whoever it is that's driving that has been something that has clogged the lane up even more. They've gotten hands on the ball, which has thrown off LeBron's timing. And then suddenly he's in the air without a good grip on the ball, jumping into somebody taking a charge. They've gotten strips off of this. LeBron has in dealing with these slipped multiple times. So it's just a very uncomfortable situation for the offense. What we can do, and I, I think there are a couple different things, especially because they're going to keep doing this. Markeith Morris, whether it's Markeith Morris, Rajon Rondo, KCP, or Danny Green, they're helping off of those players to do these stunts. It's not a matter of, oh, go through, throw a three-point shooter out there. Because the Lakers don't have Steph Curry. The Lakers don't have Klay Thompson. The Lakers, one of their best three-point shooters, Markeith Morris, Danny Green, some of these guys, they're not even taking some of these open shots. So the Denver isn't respecting them, and they're sending these hard stunts. And so what you can do instead is get that guy out of there. Instead of having a single gap of space in between the top of the key and that uh, wing player and then somebody in the corner, 
only have a player at the top of the key and somebody in the corner. Don't have the wing player on the side that you're driving because then you won't face that stunt. So just by moving them to the opposite side of the court, you you can impact this. The other thing you can do, and this would be great if you do have somebody in the dunker spot, is knowing that the defender at the wing is going to come cause some problems on the drive and then that uh, bigger guy is, is either going to stand around or maybe he's the one pre-rotating and getting in front of the rim. What you want to do is send that big guy and have him come set a flare screen. Go, go set, set a screen on the player who's helping in on the drive so he can't recover back to his player. Uh, it's the same distance as before, but now he has to go through somebody. So that means he won't be able to recover in time. So little things like that are, are able to make a big difference. I think the third thing that Portland did was on post-ups. So the first first two were on drives. This is on post-ups. Denver was having the defense pack the paint, send an extra half guy into the paint the same way Portland kind of did. Uh, not as many hard doubles uh, as, as Denver showed during the regular season against AD, but they're getting bodies in the way. And I'm sure they looked at film from the first two rounds, realized this work and decided to use it. Because when AD turns and he looks and he sees five guys in the paint, he's not making the right passes. He's not making those reads. He can, but he hasn't been. And with any consistency and not to the point that the defense would need to respect it. And even when he is making those skip passes, often the defense is able to scramble and recover because the Lakers aren't cutting. They're not setting screens for each other. I put out a couple videos over the past few days highlighting what this could look like if the Lakers were doing some of that cutting and screening to create more functional space and spread the defense out. Uh, Denver is the best at attacking this. If you send help, they have three guys weak side. One of them is going to cut and the other two are going to space out to kind of almost the top of the key on the wing and in the corner. So if you have two defenders defending three guys, all of a sudden they're very far apart from each other. They're not standing next to each other. It's not an easy rotation. And then that skip pass results in an open shot instead of a scramble drill. So that was one thing that could happen. And, and it's, it's been a big issue. If AD sees that, a lot of times he's ending up taking just mid-range jumpers. If LeBron sees it, he's, he's been doing the same. We saw, I think, two LeBron post-ups in a row in, it may have been the third quarter, where he was getting those, it was almost a low post-up. He was, he was kind of in mid-range. He ended up taking really tough, guarded, contested jumpers that he made. But those were positions where you would want him to be able to drive. But because those, that extra help is there, he's not driving. And because guys are standing around, even if he were to pass out, which LeBron will do, but AD hasn't been doing, you're not getting open shots from it. So it's it's a lose-lose situation for the Lakers unless they adjust to that. The fourth thing that Denver is doing is actually on ball screens. And we, we've mentioned this. Those on-ball defenders are going under screens instead of over because they're not respecting the pull-up three-point shots of LeBron, Rondo, or Caruso. This gives up that three-point shot. Those players haven't been going after it. Caruso attempted one in game two, which I was happy with. I'd love to see LeBron target this a bit more. The other thing you can do if he doesn't want to take that shot is try to flip that screen again. Keep keep it going back and forth. But instead of just dribbling side to side along the three-point line, get a little bit deeper each time. If, if you're driving from the top of the key a little bit to the right and they go under that screen, have that screener come back down, set another one so you can go middle. Not from the same spot you started with, but closer to the rim and, and do that until they're able to, uh, until you're able to make them go over the screen. Usually it takes just to get the look that you want, but LeBron has been poor at attacking this. A lot of times he's just kind of gone side to side and they've just continued going under. 
and that's not getting an advantage for LA and it's wasting a lot of time. So flipping those screens, last pod we talked about running handoffs where LeBron's able to get his footwork set and take easier threes because the defense is going under those as well. Instead of dribbling into that three-point shot, he can run and, and, and hop into a catch and then just shoot. But those are some of the options. Those are the four things that Denver's doing to stop LA attacking the paint. And it's been really effective. Denver is dropping and catch hedging with Jokic uh, and they're catch hedging and switching with Millsap. Um, so pops are available for the most part. If you want Morris out there to take and make threes, instead of sending him weak side and just standing around and, and hoping that Denver doesn't continue doing what they've been doing for the past game and a half, be more assertive about it. Have him set the screen and pick and pop. And we saw LA do this with success. He's getting open. Have him get open. If you have AD and Morris out there, stick AD in the dunker spot, be that lob threat that we talked about to counter the pre-rotating, have Morris pick and pop so that he'll be open. And if they do stick with him and LeBron's able to drive, ideally in, in a double gap like we talked about, he's able to get to that rim or throw that lob. So that is one thing that I'd like to see. Um, if if AD's out there with Morris, have Morris set those screens. If McGee and, or Howard are out there with AD, have them in the dunker spot and have AD be the one picking and popping. If you have LeBron at the four and AD at the five, that is where I think you can pick and roll um, and, and get some more from high ball screens. You can also mix in some pick and pops. We saw this late in the fourth quarter in the very few half-court possessions the Lakers did get uh, once they started playing th- their 3-2 zone. And, and those are advantageous situations for the Lakers. It ended up getting Denver to have to switch instead of doing what they had been doing. And they don't want to switch with Jokic because LeBron can drive right past him. And that's what LeBron did. Um, so run those pick and pops if you have LeBron and AD at the four and five. And you're going to either get open AD pops or you're going to get your switch and then LeBron can attack. And when that happens, you have AD popping. So the other bigger guy is nowhere near the rim. So that's a clear land of the basket. We need to see more of that. This is something Denver did this past game that was pretty smart and actually resulted in our bigs having less rebounds as, or fewer rebounds as they would keep Millsap and they would keep Jokic attacking from the perimeter rather than inside. So then they could attack the fact that our guards and wings don't box out much by crashing those players rather than trying to play their bigs versus our bigs download. Because our bigs, for the most part, box out. We'll, we'll get into that in, in, a, in a second. So those those are some of the key things for the Lakers. If they're able to do that, if they do those adjustments, they attack what Denver's giving them, they're going to see the paint packed less. They're going to get to the rim more. They're going to be scoring more. They're going to be using their personnel better and improving these net ratings with Morris out there or, or with McGee out there, Howard out there. When we look at the Lakers running, attacking uh, smarter will keep Denver from running, but on the defensive end, maybe playing some more 3-2 zone or changing up those coverages like I talked about, we'll get the Lakers out and running more. In this game, the Lakers had 25 points from transition. In the first quarter, they had four points on three possessions, and it was only 11% of our offensive possessions. In the second quarter, we had zero points on three possessions, and it was 10% of our offense. In the third quarter, we had nine points on five possessions. It was 20% of our offense, and this is when Ellie started switching more. And because of those switches, we saw Millsap, Grant, and Porter each trying to create for themselves late in the shot clock and turn the ball over, and we got runouts and scored. When you switch, you're not giving up that collapsing defense. You're not giving up those those easy shots for players. You're not allowing those finishers to be finishers. You're making them be creators. And that's not something those three players or Gary Harris or these other guys are really able to do all that well. And then in the fourth quarter, when the Lakers really use that zone a bunch, 
we actually saw 12 points uh, from transition in 10 possessions, and that was 37% of our offense. So huge jumps in the third quarter and then in the fourth quarter, but for good reason. This just didn't happen randomly. It wasn't, oh, you know what? Denver got careless with the ball. It was, we changed things, and it resulted in more success. When we look at that 3-2 zone, uh, this is something that I we didn't talk about on the podcast, I don't think, but this is something I covered in my pre-series breakdown. Denver's been pretty good at attacking zones this year, but you have to keep in mind that a 3-2 zone isn't like a 2-3 zone, which is what pretty much every team that ran a zone during the regular season would be doing. 3-2 zone isn't one of those where you can just take easy threes. Um, against a 2-3, you can just overload pretty easily and, and get open three-pointers. Against a 3-2, you have to attack in the right ways. And out of that desperation with the Lakers going to this, we saw them be able to do what they did against Houston and fly around and cause turnovers and get runouts. And Denver just had no answer. So I assumed that they would be more prepared, given that we just ran it for a whole series. Logically, you would think that it would work less against Denver than it did against Houston, just because Denver is used to cutting and shooting and they have playmaking bigs or one really good playmaking big and another one that can make some of those reads. But LA had great success with it. Do it again. Don't get away from it. We actually got away from it late in the fourth quarter randomly. And then Denver would score when we like play man to man for whatever reason. So stick with it, make them prove that they can beat it and then adjust. Don't adjust because you're worried they might adjust. Keep the burden on the opponent to show you they know what they're doing for a possession or two in a row and then do something about it. And then the last big topic I want to talk about is the rebounding. Uh, I, I tweeted out after the game that JaVale, Dwight Howard, AD, and Morris combined had four total rebounds and only three defensive rebounds, which sounds awful. And, and that's one of those things that fuels people saying, oh, they were lazy. They didn't try. They didn't have enough energy. They only had 10 total opportunities as a group to grab defensive rebounds, which is crazy low. Um, and that excludes ones where they deferred to teammates. But still, a 40% conversion rate is, is very, very poor. Part of this, and there were many things that went into this, part of this is that Jokic didn't post up nearly as much as he did in Game 3. He and Millsap lived on the perimeter, so they kept their guys further away. This was on purpose for Denver. That meant that it was guards and wings crashing and, and going after those boards. That's why we saw LeBron have as many rebounds as he did, because he was often the, the man defending the rim, the low guy, even before we were playing zone. Another part of this is that uh, LA was sending Anthony Davis early on some occasions to try to leak into transition. So he wasn't really in a position to rebound. Part of this is the fact that he's pretty versatile. So he'll be defending on the perimeter a bit more. Uh, part of this is the fact that players were boxing out, but on other parts of the court, so they weren't really chasing the board. So they didn't, didn't even really put themselves in a position where they had an opportunity to grab the rebound because they were just sticking with their guy. And then in some other situations, they weren't boxing out like Markeith Morris. And this is something that we talked about last game on the podcast that he's not boxing out and the Laker guards and wings aren't doing a good job of this. So we saw Denver figure that out and be crashing in the second half and getting offensive rebounds. And we saw them double down on that today. It was the same level of effort from the Lakers, but Denver adjusted to it and, and changed that quick little tactic. And they were ending up, they, they've ended up killing us on the boards. So that's a lot of it. In addition to all of that, there are, I did see, I think, two, maybe three possessions where Jokic and Plumlee, in, in just a couple minutes he played, were pushing guys around. JaVale McGee, uh, Markeith Morris, these are not the strongest of guys. Dwight Howard, he's going to hold his own. Uh, AD, for the most part, is going to hold his own. But even when those guys are trying to box out, sometimes they're, they're not doing a great job. Or instead of boxing out, they're just kind of in the way, and they let the opponent be the one using the force and moving them and, and then getting the board. You want to hit that guy. 
you want to hit them and then chase that rebound. So all of these things went into it. A, a big piece of it, again, was the fact that Denver purposely had their bigs on the perimeter, opened up driving lanes as soon as it was clear that the Lakers were not going to be switching ball screens. So part of this was them purposefully doing these things. But if you just call all of that rebounding just lazy or unfocused as like the sole reason for it, I, I just I'm not sure what you're looking at. So we've talked about a lot. Uh, we've talked about adjustments. I think the Lakers should be looking to make. If they make these, we're in pretty good shape. If they make half of these, the Lakers should should be winning the next game. The Lakers can certainly still win the series in five. If they keep playing like they did today, it could go six or seven. Uh, with how Denver attacks the 3-2 zone, that, that is another big variable. We'll have to see adjustments from them and how they do that. If you want to see how they might be able to, to attack the 3-2 zone, I wrote a whole article from round two about how Houston could have attacked the double-teaming and the 3-2 zone from the Lakers in really smart, relatively easy, nothing too complex of ways. And I included uh, some videos and a lot of diagrams that showed you exactly what I would want them to do. That's, I think, easier than me trying to convey all of that through audio. But um, I I think that's about it for today. I still feel pretty good. I'm going to continue breaking down the film and looking at stuff, but I've already broken down offense and defense, log stuff, look at the data. Um, And I'd say that this is very well within the Lakers' grasp. If they make the right adjustments, do the right things, we can still dominate the series. But we saw in game three, a pivotal game, one team came with smart adjustments, the other team did not. Until late in the fourth quarter, out of desperation, we tried a zone, and and that was able to fuel some stuff. But I'm anticipating some changes for next game. Uh, Know that Frank Vogel is a coach that often tries to fix his offensive issues without actually changing any of the offensive X's and O's, which really irks me. But going small, changing lineups, changing personnel has been a way he's tried to solve this in the past. And in previous rounds, going small was an answer that was able to change the calculus on how the Laker offense attacked. But against Denver, it it hasn't. So we need to be smarter, making defensive changes, trying to be more aggressive, whether that be through the switching, or if you want to go send some traps on ball screens. Because honestly, if you're going to try to catch, hedge, and recover, you might as well just be trapping. Because then instead of having a big in no man's land and and a guard that has no pressure on his pass, you can actually get some ball pressure and and then maybe send an extra guy to try to jump that pass. That's something we can see from the Lakers. Playing the 3-2 zone, I mean, shouldn't be causing this level of disruption, but as long as it is, keep doing it. It's truly baffling to me some of of the way that some of these teams have attacked different things the defenses have thrown at, have thrown at them but that's just something to learn from and and keep in the back of your mind keep trying to be the aggressor we've seen the whistle go to the aggressor in the series and playing those smarter tactics is the way to go and if LA can get back to the switching um, rather than trying to hedge and recover we or, or, or playing drop coverage I think we'll see less from Murray certainly we're going to see less playmaking from Murray certainly he had a ton of assists this game and and that is why so less playmaking from him less scoring from him we're going to see no pick and pops open and it's going to become a 2v2 game. And that is when the Lakers don't let the other Denver players get involved. You, you don't have to worry about Jeremy Grant hitting a bunch of threes if he's not getting a bunch of open threes. Those are some of the adjustments. We'll see what the Lakers go and do. I have my worries because we've seen these challenges from other teams in the playoffs and the Lakers have used workarounds instead of solutions to answer them. But I'll say that the, the changes that need to be made aren't that difficult and, and they're well within what the Lakers personnel and coaching staff is able to do. So we will see what happens. This has been 
the Lakers Exceptionalism podcast, our, our first, no, what, second episode under that name. Um, but keep following, share, uh, subscribe, please. And uh, if you're able to give us a review on iTunes, that'll help us get this out to more Laker fans. Um, but, you know, down to one. Let's uh, let's win this next one and make it a 3-1 game and then put them away. All right, this has been Cranjus McBasketball. I've been Cranjus McBasketball. This has been the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. We will see you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.